Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Mala. Well, it looks like we're going to stay on Blog Talk Radio for a while anyway, although we may try some other platforms. This week, we actually have two stories, all right? But there's an underlying theme, and the theme is corruption. So this, this particular report, this episode is all about corruption, corruption, and just when you thought you couldn't find more, Still more corruption. So first we're going to start with the arrogance of quite a few of these corporate attorneys at these vulture law firms. Many of them, many corporate attorneys will argue they're not corrupt. It's a bristle. It's a mere suggestion of it. Because at least their rationale is at least some of their actions or the actions of their corporate clients are technically legal. And they argue because of that they are not corrupt. Now, mind you, they're semantically hair-splitting, but, again, that bigger picture is very easily just surgically removed, along with, you know, any semblance of a conscience these corporate legal vultures may have. And they claim, okay, so these actions, they're technically legal, therefore they're not corrupt. And to that I say, hogwash. Corruption exists even within the domain of technical legality. I mean, for Christ's sake, this nation was founded on corrupt corrupt institutions. And we don't have to look any further than the institution of slavery, which was technically legal. And then until the Emancipation Proclamation, that is. And the institution of slavery was indisputably founded on deeply malicious bigotry and corruption. But yet... It was technically legal. So using the argument that these corporate attorneys claim that because something's technically legal, they're not corrupt, is pure nonsense. All right? You don't look any further than slavery and Jim Crow to find out that there are things that are legal yet still remain utterly corrupt. So this episode is going to be talking about corruption. And we're going to, we have two reports that interlock in really unusual ways. Okay, so first we're going to discuss a proposed bill that was, this was actually from last year. So last year it was a proposed bill. I don't know if it went through or not, but there was a bill which was suggested that would nullify the rights of local municipalities as well as states to sue big oil or fossil fuel industry for damages to the environment in their communities. And and that's part of it. And that particular proposed bill was really under the auspices of ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And ALEC has worked very feverishly to criminalize dissent and as well as preempt or nullify the right of local municipalities to sue or states to sue for the environmental crimes of big fossil fuel or any other corporate, um, corporate clients they have. So the first part of the bill is going to discuss that bill that would have protected big oil from lawsuits due to the COVID crisis. 
The second part of the report is going to deal with the prosecutorial and judicial abuse of human rights attorney Stephen Donzinger, who is also our environmental hero. So we're going to start first with the bill aimed at shielding the oil company, the oil industry, that is, from lawsuits. Now, this particular article um, was written a year ago, July 31st, 2020, by Karen Savage, and it is in a publication called The Climate Docket. And the headline is, Trade Group Floats Model Bill to Shield Oil Industry from Climate Lawsuits. So Karen Savage wrote this, and she explained how this model bill was written by the attorneys at ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And this was as a response to this past year's COVID-19 crisis. Now, the group, ALEC has memberships that, that have many oil companies. Um, there are trade associations, lobbying groups, and public relations firms that are all associated with the fossil fuel industry. And they produced this model legislation for state governments. And this was a document by ALEC on their own website. They can't avoid that. Now, excuse me, while this particular suggested bill doesn't specifically mention the pandemic, um, it does limit civil liability for corporations and their employees after, get this, a, quote, declared disaster or public emergency, provided the company complied with or made a good faith effort to comply with federal, state, or local regulations, end quote. And that was written in July of 2020. So the, the model for this bill that could be basically adapted all over the United States in just about every state house um, is called the Liability Protection for Employers and is Declared Disaster or Public Emergency Act. Well, you can't get the attorneys of, of Alex for you know, charging that they're particularly creative. Now, this particular suggested bill wouldn't apply retroactively, but if state legislatures passed it, it could in the future prohibit anyone filing future climate-related litigation in municipalities that have also declared climate emergencies. And as of last July, some 98 U.S. municipalities declared a climate emergency. And that is according to CEDEMIA. Okay. And there are several that have already filed climate liability lawsuits against fossil fuel companies basically trying to hold them accountable for the damage they've done to the climate in terms of climate change. Now, we have a quote here from Lisa Graves, who is the founder and executive director of True North Research, which is a policy research group. And she refers to ALEC as a corporate bill mill, which it is. It, it writes these model bills and then hands them out like, you know, like popcorn to state-level legislators. And these legislators are encouraged to copy and paste wording into the bills that they sponsor. And that is as documented by the Washington Post. Okay. Once these bills are introduced, then representatives from Alex, and this is in air quotes, help state lawmakers do any background research or help them strategize to get this legislation passed into state law. 
Okay. Now, Lisa Grace goes on to actually, there's a quote from her, and she goes on to say, quote, it's possible that was designed to use this crisis in order to thwart future lawsuits about the devastating climate changes that are underway or other liability in the midst of other crises that may be caused by those very businesses and their decisions. Okay. So there's a lot of ALEC members. Now, they've lost the members because they received some bad publicity, but they still get money in other sneaky ways. But Current ALEC members as of 2020 include fossil fuel giants, uh, Chevron, Marathon, Coke Industries, and all of them been named in climate-related litigation. But also, there are also other ALEC members like railroads, public relations firms, trade associations, lobbying groups, and others that are somehow affiliated with the fossil fuel industry. And give you an example, Coke Industries was named in a climate fraud lawsuit in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota is apparently, according to this article, an Alex Stronghold. Okay, so Lisa Graves once again explains, quote, um, excuse me, I lost my place here. <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Lisa Graves explains, quote, Coke Industries have given Alex an untold sum of money, certainly more than $2 million over time. Now, Grace has spent quite a bit of time investigating Alex. She is the predominant author of a report known as alecexposed.org, and I urge you to check it out. It's an excellent report. But to quote Graves, quote, we'll never know how much Coke Industries has actually given to Alex since 1993 because it's not required to be disclosed. Well, we know the Coke Industries and or the Coke family fortune has bailed Alec out. Including, including giving it a loan of nearly a half a million dollars when it was on the ropes. Now, a lot of ALEC members, the majority of ALEC members are actual office soldiers or members of the GOP. There are a few Democrats, not many. One of them, guess what? Joe Manchin. Anyway, moving on, um, ALEC has lost some members on some past controversies. ALEC is responsible for um, spearheading, and they crafted the, the model for the Florida Standard Ground legislation, um, which really resulted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. Okay. Um, and there's been several oil giants that have left ALEC. ConocoPhillips left in 2012. British Petroleum and Shell uh, let their memberships expire in 2015. ExxonMobil left in 18, um, but then Grace explains a little more, especially about Exxon's uh, departure. Um, their, their Exxon's departure wasn't anything to praise because, quote, it does not undo the damage that Exxon has done through ALEC for decades in terms of advancing climate change denial and sowing doubt about climate change denial and pushing me measures that would, thwart, that would thwart measures to redress or mitigate the climate changes that are underway. Now, end quote. So I would add that this bill to shield fossil fuel companies lets the industry have the best of both worlds. They get to say that they quit ALEC while ALEC continues to do their legal dirty work for them through various trade groups that the same fossil fuel industry giants fund. So, and apparently Lisa Graves said the same thing. To quote her, she said, quote, sometimes corporations will leave ALEC 
because they're public-facing corporations and they're embarrassed by Alec's position once the American public learns of them. Then the trade groups that they fund remain in Alec, and that's certainly the case with some of these fossil fuel companies. They want it both ways. They want the good PR say, look, we did the right thing, but they still want the benefit of Alec membership, at least for them. So Alec's model liability protection for employers in a declared disaster or public emergency act. This bill was fast-tracked, and it was proposed on a task force uh, last May, and that was as reported by The Intercept. And they named Mark Behrens, who is a partner at the law firm, which really houses Alex, which is Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. And Behrens is, Mark Behrens is a partner at Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. He's also chair of Alex's ironically named Civil Justice Task Force. Um, Barron's really led this call and advocated for the passage of uniform state bills, quote, with strong protections against frivolous lawsuits, end quote. Oh, my Lord. Now, there's another partner at Shokardi and Bacon, Victor Schwartz, and he serves on Alex's Board of Scholars. Shokardi and Bacon has also represented the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, the, the law firm of Shukardi and Bacon, which, again, is the heart of the American Legislative Exchange Council and has been for decades, uh, based in Kansas City, but they have some other offices like in London, they first gained notoriety by defending the tobacco industry in their lives. Remember how the tobacco industry, in spite of all the medical evidence, kept lying straight face that tobacco use does not cause cancer, and we know that it does. So um, this is how, and they gained notoriety, and this was as documented by the ABA Journal. But then after they defended big tobacco, they transitioned to defending fossil fuel companies, especially regarding climate change-related litigation. Um, there's another partner in Shikari Bacon, somebody named Tristan Duncan, who was the lead counsel for Peabody Energy um, because the Peabody attacked the Obama administration's, excuse me, the Obama administration's clean power plan. Okay. Phil Goldberg, who is another Shikari and Bacon partner, um, is the special counsel for the Manufacturers Accountability Project. Now, that was launched in 2017 by the National Association of Manufacturers. Guess why? Quote, to push back against climate change-related lawsuits, end quote. So apparently, when the tobacco industry, and we've talked about this on the show, the tobacco industry knew for decades that they were a major, the major contributor to global warming. And they knew it based on their own scientific research that they funded and then buried. So this is, once again, not only did the fossil fuel industry lie like big tobacco and hide the truth as they're helping to destroy this planet, but now they're pushing basically model bills that would make it illegal for local municipalities or states to sue the very industry that knowingly with malice, caused this problem in the first place. And that no, the same industry that knowingly, through Alex and a few other groups, funded climate change denial. 
They're a real piece of work. To add more insult to injury, Shakardi and Bacon was a registered lobbyist for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Institute for Legal Reform in 2018, pushing for what they call tort reform. And basically what they do, what they want to do is make it harder for average citizens to actually to file any sort of lawsuit. Sorry about that. That was an error. So Lisa Graves, um, on this law firm, Shakardi and Bacon, these, these legal vultures, quote, the fact is that Mark Barron's and Victor Schwartz and Shakardi and, and Shakardi and Chamber and the National Association of Manufacturers are on the wrong side of history. They've done everything they can to try to thwart the ability of people to hold these corporations accountable, end quote. Well, it's true. And then basically, um, we have a quote from David Armiak, who is the research director for the Center for Media and Democracy. And this was after this civil justice task force convened this emergency meeting uh, for Alec to finalize this, this legislation that would keep local governments from suing the fossil fuel industry for damages. Quote, the fact that they met in an emergency meeting and passed it shows that this was a very, very important issue to them. By the time the annual meeting happened, it was already finalized. Alec has an annual meeting every year. In fact, it's going on right now. Okay? And I know for a fact that many state legislators, including State Rep. Justin Hill from Missouri, who is one of the leadership, he's at that Alec conference right now. So... And to quote Armiak a little further, quote, it's funny how these groups work because they claim to be for a localized democracy and individual freedom, but they're really about solidifying power, end quote. And when Alec was contacted by this reporter, they, they didn't comment. And Armiak's thinking that Alec is exploiting the COVID-19 crisis for this model bill to protect corporate profits. While they basically preempt or nullify the right of local towns and states to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for climate change. Keep in mind, once again, the actual proof documenting that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for our present global climate change disaster as they consistently lied about the effects their products had on global warming comes from research funded by these same fossil fuel giants. They knew for decades. Lisa Graves explained that if this particular model le legislation goes through various states and is actually enacted, it could be that get-out-of-jail-free card for corporations. To quote Lisa Graves, quote, that's completely, completely unjustified and contrary to sound public policy in terms of the way liability is supposed to work in America, which is to provide incentives for businesses to do the right thing versus blank checks basically for them to do the wrong thing to put their profits ahead of the well-being of the American people. Okay. So we talked a lot about ALEC. So what is it? Well, as I said before, ALEC is a corporate bill mill. But the attorneys with ALEC, the attorneys of Shokardi and Bacon, deny this inconvenient truth. But this information is coming from SourceWatch. And their definition, quote, ALEC is a corporate bill mill. It is not just a lobby or a front group. It is much more powerful than that. Through ALEC, corporations hand state legislatures, legislators their wish list to benefit their bottom line. Corporations fund almost all of ALEC's operations. 
They pay for a seat on ALEC task forces where corporate lobbyists and special interest reps vote with elected officials to approve model bills. Learn more at the Center for Media and Democracy's alecexposed.org and check out the breaking news on exposedbycmd.org. And you really should check it out. It's a wonderful site. So let's look at this. There's a piece from the Washington Post. Who or what is Alex? The true danger it poses, as well as its cohorts at affiliated groups, namely the State Policy Network and Americans for Prosperity. So this is an analysis from the Washington Post, huh? from a, some sort of a, it's called monkey cage, I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's written by Henry Farrell, okay? And Henry Farrell um, is, he's a contributor there, all right? So the, and this was done August in 2019. The headline is Conservatives Remade American State Politics, Here's How They Did It. It's relatively easy and cheap to influence underfunded American state legislatures, end quote. And this is from Oxford University Press. So he goes on to explain um, he had spoken to a man, an assistant professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, uh, Professor Alex Hertel Fernandez. Hertel Fernandez is also the author of a book titled State Capture, How Conservative Activists Big businesses and wealthy donors reshape the American state and the nation. Okay, so he goes on. He has this conversation with uh, Professor Hertel Fernandez, and uh, Hertel Fernandez explains that Alec or the American Legislative Exchange Council is a network of state legislators, conservative philanthropies, and wealthy donors, right-leaning advocacy groups, and private sector businesses quote, that drafts and disseminate model bill proposals for state legislation. This is a direct quote. Given Alex members, these model bills tend to advance conservative pro-business priorities. The organization was launched in the 1970s, substantially revamped in the late 1980s, and has enjoyed growing success in terms of its membership and legislative victories throughout the 1990s and early to mid-2000s. At its peak in the mid-2000s, Alex could claim around a fourth of all state legislators as members alongside hundreds of large Fortune 500 companies, major conservative advocacy groups like the NRA, and philanthropies like the Bradley Foundation, end quote. And the professor goes on to say that really, regarding the journalistic and political coverage that Alex receives, that has really been mischaracterized. You know, that's often described as basically a front group for big business or kind of, you know, some sort of an appendage to the Koch political network, but he goes on saying, no, it's, it's more of a political coalition. It's much more powerful and more dangerous. Um, so basically, it has included, quote, throughout its history, many social conservative advocacy groups and libertarian organizations. Balancing these diverse interests was not always an easy task, and one reason I think Alex has had such staying power over the decades since the 1970s has been its ability to come up with organizational tactics for adjudicating conflicts between its members, end quote. So, you know, Alec's a bunch of snakes. They were a major, Alec was a major opponent of the Affordable Care Act. And Alec also helped conservative legislatures undermine um, not only the Affordable Care Act, but also undermining any expansion of Medicaid 
we had that happen here in, in Missouri. You know, we had a, a statewide referendum, and not only was it a statewide referendum, it actually changed the state constitution to make sure that it couldn't be challenged, and it passed in a conservative state like Missouri. But the legislature, controlled by the GOP, refused to follow the law and the fact that the Constitution had been changed. And they went to court with our AG, Eric Schmidt. They lost. But once again, it's really emboldened these GOPers to defy even public votes. Um, Alex also championed anything that basically um, attacks unions, especially the public sector, okay? Um, it helps popularize this, the strategy of state legislative preemption as well. They just talked about that. That's where conservative state governments can block liberal cities from passing measure, measures that exceed state policy, whether it's on the minimum wage, environmental standards, paid sick and family, for instance. Uh, here in Missouri, just recently, this state legislative preemption, which nullified the right of local municipalities to pass their own, their own ordinances that just covered their municipalities, this was used to abolish a couple of things. First of all, um, it, the preemption abolished an increased minimum wage passed by voters in St. Louis City and would have only applied to St. Louis City. But right now we're facing a GOP governor and an attorney general who are using the same preemption tactic to reverse a new mask mandate in St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Presently, we have never had a mask mandate in Missouri. Our, our governor is, is just plain ignorant. All right, he's a Trump acolyte. And he came down with COVID literally days after he was at a party and refused to mask and was making fun of the whole idea. But St. Louis City and St. Louis County reenacted a mask mandate just for their own municipalities because the Delta variant is surging in Missouri. Our hospitals are filling up, as not from people in St. Louis or St. Louis County, it's filling up with people from the rural areas in Missouri who refuse to mask and refuse to vaccinate. So we did something to try and protect ourselves, and now our Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, is going to court to basically say we can't do that. In fact, they even passed a bill in Missouri, HB 271, that limited what our local health departments could do. And why is Eric Schmidt doing this? He wants Roy Blunt's U.S. Senate seat. That's all. Now, here's the ultimate irony. R.A.G. Eric Schmidt has, according to his own bio, a special needs child who is also medically vulnerable. And the Delta variant really hurts kids 12 and under because they can't be vaccinated. And apparently, Eric Schmidt is only pro-life when it protects his kid, but not anyone else's. That's my opinion. So the preemption, this idea that state legislatures can act as dictators and local municipalities can't take care of their own stuff without getting permission from the nanny state at the state, uh, at the state capitol, now you know who to blame. It came from Alex. And Alec meaning the lawyers of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. So Alex also pushed states to push major cutbacks and taxes and public revenue as well. So this is really, you know, Professor Hernandez documented in his book, State Capture, 
And Alex really taking advantage of the fact that a lot of state legislatures, it's a part-time job, okay? And very few of these legislators have full-time staff, so on and so forth. And the fact is, that's still not an excuse. But Alex basically outflanked us. And, you know, these model bills are really, call it there, they're a cheat sheet, okay? And these GOPers are just rubber stamping whatever Alex puts in front of them because that's what big money and big corporate wants. They're not representing anybody else. Yeah. So it's not just Alex. There are, it has a few counterparts, the State Policy Network and Americans for Prosperity. Now, the State Policy Network is state-level conservatives, pro-business. They're alleged think tanks. And they produce research reports and media commentary and witness testimony. So you've got Alex that is the bill mill. They produce these model bills, which basically state-level legislators are encouraged to copy and paste so they don't actually have to think. That's one. Then you've got the State Policy Network that produces this bogus research and media commentary and witness testimony. You may as well call State Policy Network what it is. Rent an expert. You know, just like you rent a hooker, except these are academic hookers, nothing else. And then you've got Americans for Prosperity, which, you know, is part of the teabaggers, I'm sorry, the tea party. And they are funded by the Cokes as well, and it's an advocacy group. And really, Americans for Prosperity looks like a, a political party. They have local field offices in a lot of battleground states and counties, and but they're not, okay? They really have worked through the GOP, okay? So this is what we're doing, and we have we have GOP legislators who are rubbing, rubber stamping whatever Alec puts in front of them because they benefit politically and they don't have to think. And then you have... Um, excuse me. And then you have um, a cowardly Democratic Party that won't fight, that really woefully underestimated how vicious this GOP is. Even the president doesn't. I'm just going to say it, okay? This GOP is not the GOP of the 1970s. It is far more vicious. Just is. This GOP... It's a GOP of white supremacy, and it is not really hyperbole to say that this GOP of Trump is the new American Nazi party. I said it, and I won't take it back. So this was the article. Henry Farrell wrote it. He is uh, an Agora Institute professor at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. You know, he's a 2019 winner of the Friedrich Schneidel Prize for Politics and Technology, and he's editor-in-chief for this segment of the Washington Post that is referred to as the Monkey Cage blog. I thought that sounded odd, but that's what it is. Now let's look at, really quickly, Alec itself, okay, and the law firm that really birthed Alec. And that law firm started in Kansas City, the firm of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. And they're utterly unethical tactics. It gives a hint of how they'll fight on these climate change lawsuits. 
but with far more dire consequences and why their dirty tactics matter. So um, this is an article from the ABA Journal. It was written by Mark Hansen. And this was written back in 08. Okay. Um, and the title is Shikardi Smokes Him. Okay. So it's obviously a euphemism. And the first line is really very telling. Quote, it was a Perry Mason moment. You know, I know people that went to law school and became attorneys, and when they were kids, they watched Perry Mason, and they loved Perry Mason. But the fact is, that's a myth, All right? Most attorneys use semantic hair splitting to twist things for their clients that they know are unethical. Just like what I said earlier about, yeah, slavery used to be legal, but it was unethical, it was evil. You can't claim to be ethical and back, even if it's technically legal, back evil movements. You just can't. So they're describing uh, this case where this man's dying of lung cancer. This is when Shikardi and Bacon were um, basically defending big tobacco. Um, and it was a pro 1995 product liability suit. Um, this one man had been diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is a very rare but very deadly form of lung cancer, and it's caused by exposure to asbestos. And this man, um, apparently dying of lung cancer, blamed his disease, quote, on a filter containing asbestos used in Kent cigarette. Okay, I didn't know that. And he goes on into the actual, you know, facts of the case. When the time came to cross-examine the witness, Big Tobacco's lead trial counsel um, just attacked. Well, it might be a good strategy, but it's not necessarily ethical. He attacked this witness who was clearly dying about his medical history, his smoking habits, um, and then he brought up the witness's description of the Kent filter being the same color as his deceased father's blue eyes. Quote, did your father have brown eyes, the lawyer asked, producing a copy of a citizenship petition apparently signed by the father when he immigrated to the United States from Austria in 1928. The list of the man's eye color is brown. Quote, that's what it says, but that's not true, the witness replied, his own blue eyes welling with tears. Are you telling me that my father had brown eyes? Quote, all I'm telling you is that's what it says in this petition, the lawyer responded. Quote, that's ridiculous, the witness muttered indignantly as the document was offered as evidence. Are you trying to tell me what color my father's eyes were? So this was an example of the lawyers of Sh the kind of work that the lawyers of Shepardi and Bacon do. Uh, according to this article, it had, quote, all the hallmarks of the firm's style, which are the following. One, the search for any relevant record, no matter how obscure. Two, a tough cross-examination, and three, the coup de grace delivered at just the right moment. Now, again, they're defending their, their client. I understand that, but they crossed the line because they were harassing that witness. And it was worth a lot of money for them. Now, keep in mind, they didn't get away with it totally. The U.S. Justice Department civil racketeering suit against Big Tobacco in 2006 issued a final judgment. And U.S. District Judge Gladys Kessler of Washington, D.C. said the tobacco industry's lawyers had, quote, 
played an absolutely central role in the creation, perpetuate, per, I'm sorry, let me start again. U.S. District Judge Gladys Kessler said the tobacco industry's lawyers, and including Shokardi and Bacon, had, quote, played an absolutely central role in the creation, perpetration, and implementation of a racketeering enterprise designed to deceive the public about the dangers of smoking and the addictiveness of nicotine. What a, quote, what a sad and disquieting chapter in the history of an honorable and often courageous profession, end quote, Kessler wrote about the lawyers. Now, Judge Kessler produced an opinion in 95 that was over 1,700 pages. And she called out Shook Hardy and Bacon by name almost 200 times. Okay. And this decision also said that for 50 years, tobacco companies' lawyers directed the course of scientific research, quote, vetted scientific papers and public relations materials, identified, quote, friendly scientific witnesses, paid them enormous fees, helped hide their relationship to the industry, and took shelter behind baseless assertions of the attorney-client privilege, end quote. But this is where I started out again because the firm's attorneys really got upset at being called unethical. The firm chair, John Murphy, said, quote, there's nothing about our representation of a client that's been unethical. <clears throat> um, he claimed the plaintiff's lawyers are, quote, just doing their job and we're doing ours, end quote. Okay. And Donald Trump's really a Rhodes Scholar, but, which we know he's not. So I would argue that claim issued by firm chair John Murphy, um, when you push research you know has been discredited by legitimate sources, then you are doing something unethical. And when you produce this garbage and represent it as the truth, that's lying to the court potentially. And you're an officer of court. You can't do that. And finally, when you misrepresent evidence or alter the actual evidence, Depending on how it's done, that's arguably evidence tampering and or suborning perjury. And that's not only unethical, Mr. Murphy, it's illegal at the felony level. So this article goes on into how Shook, Hardy, and Bacon built themselves up. Uh, Mr. Hardy, you know, to quote from the article, was, quote, the epitome of the well-prepared but down-to-earth trial lawyer um, until his death in early June back in 08. Um, I'm sorry, let me go on and say it. it says, quote, Hardy spoke in a friendly, folksy manner that juries could relate to. He loved baseball and kept a transistor radio in his shirt pocket so he could keep score of Kansas City Athletics games at work. And he was totally without pretension, ordering the blue plate special for lunch at the four-stool diner down the street from his office, end quote. That's nice. So he defended corporate criminals with a smiley face and sweet anecdotes of baseball as he screwed the public. Very nice. The irony is that Hardy himself was a longtime smoker himself, and he died of heart failure in 1976. He was most likely killed by the very industry that lied to him and others about the toxicity of their product. So we can go more into it, but we're not going to have enough time to do that. But this is the firm that built up, and they became known as the firm you go to if you want vicious vultures that will do anything to win a case, 
and you don't have New York prices. That's what it is. So, you know, we began this show with a proposed bill which would shield corporate criminals in the fossil fuel industry and others from possible litigation using COVID as their get-out-of-jail-free card. And we then discussed the groups responsible for this proposed litigation and other kinds of litigation at the state level that essentially preempts and forbids any legal remedy for a whole, whole host of criminal attacks on the public and local sphere. It essentially nullifies local municipalities their right to legislate, at least within the boundaries of their own municipality. These groups specified Alex, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity, you know, as the culprits. Okay, and they are. We focused heavily, the most heavily on Alex because they not only serve as a one-stop shop for corporate criminals operating as a bill mill, and provider of bogus witnesses for corporate, then we looked at the heart of Alex, the attorney of the attorneys of Shook Hardy and Bacon. This corporate law firm has been condemned by multiple judges and was a defender of big tobacco. Shook Hardy and Bacon serves as a primary example of corporate legal vultures making a mockery of what we quaintly call rule of law. Now on to our next segment. And this like this is going to be a long show. It's going to probably take the whole 90 minutes. So now for our environmental heroes, zeros, and villains segment. We have a single, maybe not just a single, but we have an environmental hero. And that is embattled attorney Stephen Donzinger. And we have versus environmental villains and their judicial enablers, Chevron and Judge Loretta Preska, privately hired prosecutor Rita Glavin, and Judge Kaplan. In one of the most insane, illegitimate cases of judicial and prosecutorial abuse since Dred Scott. And that's the case of Chevron v. Donzinger. Now, this first article is from The Guardian, and as Stephen Donziger says, this case isn't just about him, but they're using him to make an example. So the headline, it was, um, I lost my place here, folks. All right. Um, Sorry, folks, lost my place here. Lawyers. Uh, Stephen Donziger found guilty of withholding evidence in Chevron case. Lawyer now faces six months in jail following a decades-long battle against the oil company. And this is by Oliver Millman in The Guardian. And there's a quote, because this is about a case where Donziger was a human rights attorney that worked with a bunch of other attorneys and various environmental groups to help indigenous people that were being poisoned by Chevron in Guatemala, in the Amazon, and for his, and they won. They won a huge, you know, a huge settlement. Instead of honoring the settlement that survived a couple of appeals, the lawyers of Chevron went after Donzinger and some of the other attorneys. Now, keep in mind, when you had Chevron down in the Amazon, okay, what they did, their engineers, this is so tacky. Can you imagine what the Chevron engineers told indigenous people about the oil that was all around them that was poisoning their water? Chevron engineers told these people that, quote, oil was like milk and full of vitamins. 
not kidding. All right, so Gottenzinger has recently been found guilty of criminal contempt by U.S. Federal Judge Loretta Prescott. Keep in mind, this battle's been going on for decades now against Donziger versus Chevron. Um, Donziger was denied his right to a jury. Uh, he was denied his right to a jury by Judge Loretta Prescott. Why was he found guilty? He was, he was charged with six charges of contempt because he refused to hand over evidence in this very complex legal wrangle, if you will, that um, pitted him against Chevron. Okay. Now, there, Judge Preska issued a 245-page judgment uh, as documented by storage court listener. And Preska said that Donziger had, quote, repeatedly and willfully defied court orders and that at stake here is the fundamental principle that a party to a legal action must abide by court orders or risk criminal sanctions. She also went on to say, quote, it's time to pay, to pay the piper, end quote. I guess George, Judge Loretta Prescott has a very corrupted view of rule of law. And Stephen Donzinger called the ruling, quote, a sad day for the rule of law, for our democracy, and for our planet, end quote. And he said he'll appeal. He's been handled more severely than the violent insurrectionists of January 6th. Keep that in mind. Um, Donzinger has been um, confined to his apartment for almost two years by court order wearing a monitoring bracelet. Now, he wasn't a flight risk, nothing like that, but they did that to him. He has drawn support from not only environmental activists, but also celebrities such as Alec Baldwin and Roger Waters. Donziger calls this trial a sham, and it is. To quote Donziger, I expected this, and I think we've got a very strong chance on appeal. I expect to be vindicated. The whole thing was rigged. It was a sham. I'm frankly embarrassed for my country if this has happened. So a real fat, quick summary of facts, at least the first legal facts. In 2011, there was a judgment in Ecuador. I said Guatemala earlier. I'm sorry. My mistake. This is indigenous people in Ecuador and the Amazon. So in 2011, there was judgment in Ecuador, and Chevron was ordered to pay $9.5 in damages um, two indigenous peoples represented by Donziger. Now, the Ecuadorians represented by Donziger were, you know, just attacked by decades of polluted air and water allegedly caused by the company's oil drilling activities. Um, Chevron never paid it. They accused Donziger and the other lawyers of shocking levels of misconduct, uh, as well as the Ecuadorian judiciary. But Chevron's never actually produced any real evidence uh, regarding these accusations, except for a single witness that has since recanted their testimony, admitting that they lied. So what are Chevron's lies about Donziger? Uh, Chevron accused Donziger of, one, of bribing, a judge, of bribing the judge in Ecuador, two, ghostwriting the final verdict. Okay. And in 2016, Chevron found a judge that was friendly, Lewis Kaplan, U.S. Judge Lewis Kaplan, and Judge Kaplan found that Donziger was involved in racketeering activity, and he allowed Chevron to seize Donziger's laptop and phone. Now, Donziger appealed against this, which was his legal right. 
when he appealed this, he was hit with the contempt charges, those six contempt charges that he was convicted on and placed under house arrest. Now, since federal, now here's the thing. This is an instance where he had a right to appeal. And until the appeal was decided, Chevron had no right to his laptop or phone, and Judge Kaplan had no right to punish Donzinger until the appeal decided whether or not he was actually in contempt. But he should not have been punished for making the appeal, which is his legal right. So this case was so bad, so baseless, so frivolous on Chevron's part, that federal prosecutors refused to prosecute Donzinger. So what happened was this. There was a private law firm that had done work for Chevron before, and they were hired to prosecute Donzinger. And here Donzinger say, quote, I wasn't prosecuted in a fair process. I didn't have a jury, and I think Chevron is behind all this. So now you've got this kangaroo court set up. And then you've got the lies of Judge Loretta Prescott, because she invents law that, laws and powers she actually doesn't legitimately possess. Um, Prescott denies that the lawyer, denies that Don Zinger's been the victim of this conspiracy. To quote her, she said, quote, contrary to Mr. Donziger's assertion that his conviction was preordained, um, the court finds him guilty on each count for one reason and one reason only. Mr. Donziger did that with which he is charged, period, end quote. What was Stephen Donziger fighting for that cost him, on top of which Donziger was, um, he had his law license um, revoked as well, so he was disbarred permanently. What was it that cost him his law, the loss of his law license and now his freedom? So on Democracy Now!, just this past March, um, Amy Goodman and Paulo, Paul Paz Dimino, who's the Associate Director of Amazon Watch, talked to Don Zinger. Now, to give you some background, first of all, for decades, Don, uh, Chevron drilled for oil at, you know, along the Ecuadorian Amazon. They destroyed over 1,700 square miles of land. The company refused to pay for any damage or cleanup or anything. They lost the lawsuit 10 years ago. They still refused to pay. Ecuador Supreme Court ordered the oil giant to pay $18 billion, that was the original amount, on behalf of 30,000 Amazonian indigenous people. But Chevron fought it, and they got it kicked down to $9.5 billion, still haven't paid a penny. Instead, they've been spending a decade attacking Stephen Donziger, who helped bring this case. And I really, there were other lawyers who have been punished by Chevron as well, but I think they're making this example of Donziger. Okay? And to quote Donziger, quote, Chevron and its allies have used the judiciary to try to attack the very idea of corporate accountability and environmental justice work that leads to significant judgments, end quote. Now, Paul Pazimino is the associate director at Amazon Watch. And he is really demanding that the new attorney general, Merrick Garland, really review this case, as well as uh, Don Zinger's house arrest. To quote Emino, quote, the real thing that's going on here is Chevron is attempting to literally criminalize a human rights lawyer who beat them. Now, 
I agree. So, you know, Chevron not only wasted 1,700 square miles of land in the Ecuadorian Amazon, um, but they dumped over 70 billion liters of oil and toxic waste into the Amazon. So there's been just enormous cancer clusters, children coming down with cancer. It's really been horrible. Um, so in the indigenous people of Ecuador have been suffering since the mid-60s. It started with Texaco, and then Chevron bought Texaco in 2000. So, you know, basically what they're, what they're accusing is basically that not only did Chevron do these things, um, they call it really, quote, reckless pump-and-dump oil operations, destroyed a lot of forests, um, and it used this rainforest ecosystem as a toxic dumping ground. And you have tens of thousands of people who have this epidemic of cancer, birth defects, miscarriages, and other directly oil-related illnesses. And remember, we talked about a week ago about the fact that oil and petroleum products also have a certain radioactive signature. So they went after Donzinger, and the whole world sees this for the sham it is, okay? Donzinger is a corporate political prisoner. Fifty-five um, Nobel laureates, including ten recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize, have demanded an end to the judicial attacks on Donzinger. A coalition of groups, including Amnesty International, Amazon Watch, the National Lawyers Guild, and others, um, recently wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, as documented by Amazon Watch, demanding he investigate what they described as, quote, disturbing legal attacks on Donzinger. Uh, an appeals court threw out a key contempt finding against Donzinger. So this is what's happening to this man. And keep in mind, Chevron poisoned the land, the water, and damaged a lot of people, including children, and instead they've gone after Donziger and other lawyers. In fact, Chevron sued Stephen Donziger personally for $60 billion, with a B. It's largest personal liability uh, case in the history of our country. Donziger lives in a two-bedroom apartment with his wife and son in New York. So, you know, once again, According to John Singer, these contempt charges are based on one thing. First of all, the, the claim that he was racketeering was based on a witness who has since recanted their testimony and admitted they lied and they were paid to lie. That's one. They couldn't get him on that, so they got him on this contempt thing. And part of it was Chevron wanted to see John Singer's confidential communications with his clients. And that included everything on his cell phone and, com and computer. And to quote Donzinger, and quote, when I appealed to a higher court here in New York, while the, while the appeal was pending, Judge Kaplan charged me with criminal contempt of court for not complying with the order while the lawfulness of the order was under appeal, end quote. He then had me locked up in my home, end quote. Donziger goes on to say he appointed a judge who denied me a jury. And the judge that denied him a jury 
Judge Kaplan appointed Judge Loretta Preska, who denied Stephen Donziger the right to a jury. So Donziger goes on to say in this interview on Democracy Now! that, quote, Chevron and its allies have used the judiciary to try to attack the very idea of corporate accountability and environmental justice work that leads to significant judgments. And I think they're not only trying to retaliate against me, they're trying, this is a direct quote, they're trying to send a broader message to the activist community, to the legal community, that these type of cases that truly challenge the fossil fuel industry that are intimately connected to the survival of our planet should not be allowed to happen in court, at least not at this level, end quote. Donziger also questions, you know, basically the legality of the judge to charge him with criminal contempt. You know, he said that basically it is legal for a judge to charge someone with criminal contempt provided you have an adequate basis. But then the judge is obligated under what's called Rule 42 to take those charges to the regular prosecutor, the professional prosecutor's office. But on those criminal contempt charges, the professional prosecutor, the federal prosecutor refused, quote, refused to bring the case. And I think for good reason, again, because I, so I'm going to read this quote. In this case, quote, in this case, the professional prosecutor refused to bring the case, and I think for good reason, again, because I don't think this is all about me doing my job as a lawyer and trying to defend my client's rights. It isn't about me defying the court. I was seeking more court review. I wasn't defying the court when I appealed Judge Kaplan's order that turned out to be unlawful. And Judge Kaplan's order was unlawful. The Judge Prescott ignored that. Don Zicker goes on to say, quote, so when the prosecutor refused to bring the case, Judge Kaplan appointed a private law firm. Now, it is legal for a judge to appoint a private lawyer to prosecute in those circumstances, but it is not proper to appoint a law firm that has financial ties to Chevron and has an, a client, an attorney-client relationship to Chevron. I mean, I am essentially being prosecuted by Chevron, end quote. And the law firm he named is Seward and Cassell, and the prosecutor in that case was a woman named Rita Glavin. Now she quit Seward and Cassell and formed her own little, her own little law firm, but that doesn't make this conflict of interest disappear. And then Donziger points out something that should make a lot of taxpayers angry too, because not only does Seward and Cassell have this financial, existing financial relationship with Chevron which would mean that no lawyer from them should be part of this. But they're bill quote, they're billing taxpayers for my misdemeanor prosecution. That's Donzinger. Donzinger goes on to say, quote, so far they've been paid by taxpayers $464,000 to prosecute and detain me on a misdemeanor contempt charge. My guess is they've actually been paid a lot more. We haven't seen all of the bills. Just listen to that again. Seward and Cassell have billed the public practically half a million dollars to detain and prosecute this attorney on a misdemeanor contempt charge. Donziger goes on to say, this is a for-profit private corporate prosecution of a human rights lawyer in the name of government, end quote. And he's right. So the letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland has been signed off by quite a few people, including Amnesty International, and 
they want this reviewed, these, these what they call flagrant conflicts of interest. Um, this private corporation's law firm should not have been allowed to act in the name of the state as a prosecutor. So, and this is, this is even more than what you think. This is about, you know, this is about punishing any attorney that dares to defend indigenous people, people of color that dares to defend um, and fight against environmental criminals. Okay. So Danzinger goes on to say, quote, this is about what Chevron did to poison the Amazon and Ecuador and really devastate the lives of tens of thousands of people, including resulting in death to thousands of people from cancers and other oil-related diseases, end quote. So, and he goes on and he goes on. Um, the judgment in Ecuador was upheld by Ecuador's Supreme Court and Ecuador's Constitutional Court. It went to Canada because Chevron went shopping for different areas. And Canada's Supreme Court was affirmed it also for enforcement purposes in a unanimous decision in 2015. Okay. And these attacks, according to Donzinger, are being used by a couple of federal judges to, quote, essentially disable my advocacy because I've been so involved over so many years and so many aspects of this case, including fundraising, end quote. And it goes deeper than that, okay? Um, when you look a little deeper, this targeting this attorney is really it's about something even more. According to Paul, Paul, Paul Paz and Nino, in this discussion, excuse me, he goes on to say that this whole idea of the abuse that Donziger has suffered um, on these misdemeanor contempt of court charges, quote, the real thing that's going on here is Chevron is attempting to criminalize a human rights lawyer who beat them. He's never been accused, let alone convicted, of a crime anywhere. And now Chevron's machinations by Lewis, Lewis Kaplan, the federal judge, and Presco, the judge he has appointed, are on the cusp of turning him into a criminal because he didn't comply with Kaplan's outrageous contempt of court orders. And so Stephen Donzinger for Chevron is a tactic. It's a tactic for them to avoid talking about what they actually did and have the world not look at what they actually did in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And quote, what we want as a human rights and environmental justice community is for this new administration to check the corporate power that has manipulated the judicial system to turn Stephen Donzinger into an example of what will happen if you stand up to corporate power in the United States. And it's a seriously chilling one, end quote. This is a, not just a slap suit, which is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. This is, this is an attempt to criminalize, okay? In fact, Chevron didn't just go after Donzinger. He was the main target. But Chevron went after Amazon Watch. They went after the Rainforest Action Network. They went after their own shareholders. They came after journalists. And this was what's been described as a scorched earth tactic by Chevron. And they have, as their law firm in this case, a firm named Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, which is based in D.C. And they have this... Gibson Dunn is really proud of this one tactic they have that they call the kill step. And that's a way to avoid international judgments 
on United States corporations by going after them in the United States. There's environmental racism in this case because you have a, an American corporation, majority white, dumping and poisoning a land of indigenous people of color and not caring. But it goes further than that. See, Chevron preemptively sued because they don't want this case to um, – let me back up a little bit here. Chevron is really sweating bullets now and probably the rest of the fossil fuel industry because they don't just have assets that can be attached in the United States, in the United States where they're protected, but Chevron has assets around the world. So when you have someone like Steven Donzinger working with others to enforce this judgment internationally, then it becomes something really bad for Chevron. So they decided they had to criminalize him in order to silence him. But there's no basis to it. Keep in mind, Chevron engineers told local people that oil was like milk and full of vitamins. They, this, is, this is a moral bankruptcy. I know I'm, I'm kind of drifting a little bit, but it's important. Um, there was an indigenous leader in this case named Emerguido Criollo, um, and he was, you know, a force in pushing for this lawsuit against Chevron. And he's the one that Chevron engineers said that, quote, oil was like milk and full of vitamins. Mr. Criolla um, lost two children to cancer. Okay. This is just beyond vile. That's what we're talking about now. And to quote Paul Pazzinino, this last thought, which is really um, very much on point, quote, the real thing that's going on here is Chevron is attempting to literally criminalize a human rights lawyer who beat them, end quote. You know what? He's right. So we had two stories tonight, but you can kind of see how they come together. And, uh, you know, we have this situation where a lawyer is being punished, criminalized, is, is facing jail time for doing his job, for defending his clients. And you have a case of two judges who basically have behaved in criminal manners themselves, and they know it. You have federal prosecutors who refused to prosecute Donziger because they knew the case was baseless. So they hired a connected lawyer and then billed the taxpayers, really built the taxpayers, to the tune of almost half a million dollars to detain and prosecute this attorney on a misdemeanor contempt of court charge. I would say I don't have a lot of faith in the Biden administration when it comes to uh, bringing corporate criminals to justice. I, I just don't. And I don't know much about the Attorney General Merrick Garland. I know that President Obama was a big fan. I would add, though, that if Merrick Garland, a fellow Jew, wants to be a mensch and care about 
true justice, then he must review this case. And he must hold Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska criminally accountable for their actions. And he needs to release Donzinger, vacate that conviction, and work to basically bring back his law license. This is a threat. Every lawyer out there isn't, many lawyers out there aren't going to be as strong as Donzinger. And they're not going to want to fight this. You know, we talk a lot about environmental justice. We talk, you know, we see greenwash commercials on TV on environmental stewardship, especially coming from the fossil fuel industry. You just have to choke on not just the irony, but the absolute gall. We can't allow this decision to stand. Donzinger's rights as an attorney and as an American were violated on several levels. He was illegally denied a right to trial by jury. He was charged with criminal contempt because he wouldn't give up his uh, records, his, his client's information, both on his computer and on his phone. So he did what any good attorney would do, which was his rights. He appealed Judge Kaplan's decision. And he was detained, literally imprisoned in his home, for following through on what was his legal duty as an officer of the court. And then you have Judge Preska, Judge Loretta Preska, who told him in the most arrogant fashion, it's time to pay the piper. Well, that's fine. I would say to Judge Preska and Judge Kaplan, yes, it is time to pay the piper. Because when you have judges that are corrupt, they're the ones that need to be disbarred. They need to lose their, ju- their chair, and they're the ones that need to be going to prison. Not our environmental hero, Stephen Donziger. And that's our report for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be doing more. Um, And with that, I say good night and God bless.